Hello, it's Joseph Iski here. Now, some of us have some restrictions on us regarding the amount of work we can do during the current COVID-19 crisis. So we thought now was as good a time as any to go back and have a look at some of the timeless gems we have here for you at Talking Urology Podcast. Today, I want to reintroduce the podcast I recorded when we chatted to Professor David Quinn about the Maha Hussein landmark paper comparing intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation in men with metastatic prostate cancer. Now, it's important to remember that this study was done in a pre-charted era, so before upfront chemotherapy, but there are still a lot of lessons to be learned about the limitations of intermittent ADT in men with metastatic disease. Also, I really liked his message to urologists and patients, that is, look at the study, don't just read the abstract. And even though it was three years ago, the main issues of intermittent ADT will be around the quality of life. So please enjoy. Testing, one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, 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 that's poppy enough, yeah. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go, we're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. I'm Joseph Iskia. I'm Nathan Lorenchuk. And we're Talking Urology, where we discuss the key points of the landmark papers that guide your practice every day. Today, we're looking at the Maha Hussein-led paper comparing intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation in men with metastatic prostate cancer. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, and I remember when it was first presented at ASCO in 2012, and it really stirred up some discussion in the pro-intermittent camps. Today we also have the opportunity to chat to one of the key authors on this paper, Professor David Quinn, to get his thoughts and insights. I'm an associate professor in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. I'm the medical director of the Cancer Hospital and Clinics there, the Norris uh, Cancer Hospital and Clinics, and I'm the the organ site chair for advanced prostate cancer within the SWOG genitourinary uh, cancer committee. Today we will look at the key points of this paper so you are fully armed in your next multidisciplinary meeting or tumour board when trying to decide who is suitable for intermittent androgen deprivation and who is probably not. Let's begin by looking at why was this paper done. Up until the 1990s, we had devoutly followed the findings of Nobel laureate Charles Huggins by inhibiting men's testosterone to treat their metastatic prostate cancer. Certainly, it works very well, but inevitably, castrate-resistant prostate cancer will develop. Furthermore, a large proportion of men will find the side effects quite debilitating. So in the late 1980s and early 1990s, a few Canadian urologists started looking at the possibility of intermittent androgen deprivation. Charles Huggins must have been rolling in his grave, but they did have some very compelling preclinical data that intermittent androgen depression may be able to delay progression to castration-resistant prostate cancer in a mouse model of androgen-dependent tumour. The theory was that prostate cancer is made up of different subgroups of prostate cancer cells competing for growth. They found in a mouse model that during androgen deprivation, that while the overall tumour burden decreases with death of the androgen-sensitive cells, the proportion of stem cells increased 20-fold and the proportion of androgen-insensitive stem cells increased 500-fold. 
And so intermittent androgen deprivation emerged as a possible alternative where the regrowth of the androgen-sensitive cells would suppress the growth of the castration-resistant prostate cancer cells with the ultimate benefits of delayed castration resistance, as well as quality life improvements in the off phase. And possibly reduced cost. So in 1993, Maha Hussein and Swag started to plan a trial with the following co-primary objectives. Firstly, to determine whether survival on intermittent therapy was non-inferior to continuous therapy. And secondly, to assess quality of life outcomes three months after randomisation. This trial was an international, multi-centre, randomised, controlled phase three trial, which was non-blinded. Patients with newly diagnosed prostate cancer with radiological evidence of metastases. The median PSA in this trial was 42 nanograms per mil. This is important when we try to put this trial into context with other intermittent trials. These were M1 patients, we need to remember that. All patients received a seven-month induction course with an LHRH agonist and an anti-androgen and had to achieve a PSA level less than or equal to four nanograms per mil to be included in the trial. And at the end of the seven-month induction course, patients were randomised to continue androgen deprivation therapy in the continuous arm, whereas those randomised to intermittent therapy discontinued ADT at completion of the induction course. Triggers for recommencement of ADT in the intermittent group were, firstly, a rise of PSA to baseline, or to greater than or equal to 20 nanograms per mil, or investigator discretion, which generally represented a PSA greater than or equal to 10 nanograms per mil or symptomatic disease. One of the most important aspects of this trial is the hazard ratio of 1.2, which was set as the upper limit to confirm non-inferiority. Joseph, why do you think that was set as the limit? Well, it had to do with what was the expected survival in the control continuous arm and what would be considered a clinically significant decrease in survival. We were looking at a a survival of three to three and a half years uh, in our non-experimental continuous arm and we wanted to make sure that we were really within six months of that. And that worked out to be about 20%, uh, as it were. And that was projected over a period of time. So uh, in addition, it wasn't just a statistical calculation. So we can see that it was determined that a decrease in median survival of six months in the group receiving intermittent therapy would be considered clinically unacceptable. And that's where we get a hazard ratio of 1.2 for death with intermittent therapy. So to paraphrase George Orwell, more than 1.2 bad, less than 1.2 good. In terms of results, a total of 3,040 patients were enrolled. And at the end of the seven-month induction, 1,535 was suitable for randomisation. This left 765 randomised to continuous therapy and 770 randomised to intermittent therapy. That's, that's quite a dropout. Why such a dropout? Well, I think we'd never really looked at it before. And obviously there was a, a paper published by Maha Hussain and others uh, in 1996 uh, in, uh, in JCO that looked at the nadir uh, as a predictor of outcome, and that was that was an important paper in itself because the the patients that didn't uh, essentially go to, to less than four had a survival of about a year, 30, 13 months. The ones that got to be less than zero point two survival of seventy two months median. 
and then the others in the middle. So that that was important, but um, the the dropout occurred was was somewhat multifactorial. About two thirds of the patients didn't meet criteria of response, right? The other third dropped out for other reasons. They were lost to follow up. They got sick from other things. For this study, the median follow-up period was 9.8 years, or almost a decade. The median duration of protocol therapy after randomization was 19 months in the intermittent androgen deprivation therapy arm. This was, of course, versus 17 months in the continuous androgen deprivation therapy group, which means they were changed to continuous androgen deprivation and then followed. Remember that the trial period does not include the seven-month lead-in, and this means that after two years, men will progress or become castration-resistant, which seems about right in these high-risk men. Patients in the intermittent group received ADT for a median 47% of time before going to off-protocol, meaning onto continuous androgen deprivation and then further to castrate-resistant prostate cancer. At 15 months... 78% of men in the intermittent group had resumed androgen deprivation therapy. And that's another great stat from this paper, and that is that around a fifth of men will never regain their testosterone. The primary endpoint of the trial and the key finding was the median survival after randomisation. This was 5.8 years in the continuous group versus 5.1 years in the intermittent group, representing a clear 10% relative increase in the risk of death with intermittent therapy. A hazard ratio for death with intermittent was 1.1, with the 90% confidence intervals 0.99 to 1.23. This study uh, did not meet its endpoint. So in other words, uh, intermittent therapy for a prostate cancer survival endpoint or an overall survival endpoint uh, was not met. So intermittent is, uh, is, uh, not, is, uh, is, is not not inferior, all right? So, Uh, You could turn that around and say it's inferior, but we don't have power to prove that statistically. The hypothesis that the hazard ratio for death would be less than 1.2 was not rejected because the upper limit of the 90% confidence interval was 1.23, extending beyond the predetermined non-inferiority threshold of 1.2. Importantly, a 20% increase in the risk of death could not be ruled out with 90% confidence. But the second important point is that because the lower limit of the confidence interval, being 0.99, did not exclude one, it could not be stated that intermittent therapy was significantly inferior to continuous therapy. All right, my head is starting to spin. Where does this leave us? When the New England Journal accepted the paper, uh, they did some interesting things editorially. And um, I think that their statement uh, in, the, uh, in the abstract uh, was really their feeling of how the data might be interpreted rather than what the SWOG investigators felt. Okay. Uh, we didn't disagree with that interpretation, but I think that uh, there's an issue here. If you're an abstract reader, you may not get it. When you look at the raw numbers, there were almost 10% more deaths in the intermittent arm compared to the continuous arm. In fact, 445 compared to 483 in the intermittent arm. And if you did die, it was more likely to be due to prostate cancer. Overall, 73% of deaths in the continuous group and 80% of deaths in the intermittent group were related to prostate cancer. However, given that nearly the entire confidence interval tends to favour continuous therapy, the results suggest that intermittent therapy may compromise survival. 
The lack of a significant difference between the groups does not imply similar survival. Okay, let's have a closer look at some unplanned subset data analysis. The investigators divided the men into those with extensive versus minimal disease. Minimal disease was defined as spine, pelvic bones, or lymph node metastases. Extensive was defined as those with rib, long bone, or visceral organ metastatic disease. Counterintuitively, while not statistically significant, there was no difference in survival in the men with extensive metastases, 4.9 versus 4.4 years, but a larger survival in the men with minimal metastatic disease, 5.4 versus 6.9 years. Why is that? There's not a significant uh, difference in the uh, more extensive group. So do they in fact have uh, intrinsic castration resistance Mm -hmm. to a point where they have sufficient clones that are resistant to initial hormone therapy to some degree so that the relative exposure to the hormones within the mitten doesn't actually make a big difference. Whereas if you look at the limited group, Mm -hmm. uh, they may be more hormone sensitive uh, and therefore it's more important to block their uh, testosterone optimally uh, to get that to happen. But hold on a minute. Aren't these the exact patients that were the subject of charted and stampede trials of upfront chemotherapy? So where does that leave us now? Do we need to do this trial again? I think the ship has sailed. We've now moved on from that. So that group that are the, uh, the extensive were what uh, Chris Sweeney and the ECOG and SWOL teams put together in the charted study and gave them six cycles of docetaxel and produced a big survival advantage. Mm-hmm. The good risk patients, we're now looking at doing more extensive uh, suppression of the androgen receptor pathway earlier. So in the United States, we have the SWOG 12-16 study where we're giving a terenol, which is an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, yeah. uh, versus uh, beclutamide. Uh, in Australia, we have the en- Enzimed study, which is yes. enzalutamide. What a great point. Upfront chemotherapy has been a massive change in our management of men with hormone-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer in recent years. By the time we are deciding whether they are suitable for intermittent versus continuous, they are a lot further down the track. Does chemotherapy change their disease? I don't know, but I don't think we're going to see that trial done again. Let's take a look at some of the other findings of the trial. Another take-home message was that there were no significant between-group differences in the number of grade 3 or 4 treatment-related adverse events, including cardiovascular events. But really, the study was not powered to detect a difference in these events. Mark Fui and Mathis Grossman, who published a detailed commentary in the Asian Journal of Andrology in 2013, also raised this very point. The study was not powered to detect between-group differences in serious androgen deprivation therapy-associated adverse events, between groups such as minimal trauma, fractures, or even cardiovascular events. Patients assigned to intermittent therapy reported significantly less impotence and significantly better mental health, but these differences did not persist beyond three months, and these were significant with a p-value less than 0.001. But that's not unexpected, considering that after this time point, there was a mixture of men on and off androgen deprivation. And those of you who love quality of life data, there is more to come. So just to be clear, the quality of life data are the subject of a very extensive uh, paper, and we submitted two papers to the New England at the same time, Mm -hmm. and were asked to condense them. So you've got the abstract, abstract version of the quality of life. So we're preparing that paper for submission soon. Let's talk about some of the limitations of the study. 
One of the possible limitations that may have affected its statistical power is that the median survival in the continuous arm was 5.8 years instead of the expected 3.5 years. The fact that the patients lived almost twice as long as we expected them to is a good thing for patients. And uh, the predominant accrual occurred at, at tertiary uh, referral centres, mainly NCI-designated centres. When you look at survival over the years, uh, the patients that have gone into trials have a better uh, survival, uh, slightly. Uh, but significantly at those big centres, they do better. And at those big centres, they're offered other therapies after they fail initial hormone therapy. So the, the treatment, uh, there may be more treatment options for uh, castration-resistant disease. And this is something that comes up in other papers and is the topic for a whole other discussion, and that is the benefit of patients attending a tertiary referral centre. Three meta-analyses leading up to this trial had found no difference in overall survival between the two strategies in M0 or M1 patients, or a mixture, and that intermittent therapy was associated with some better quality of life outcomes. How does this study fit in with the other trials and the meta-analyses on intermittent versus continuous therapy, which have almost all shown that intermittent therapy is not inferior to continuous therapy? The best study is the Canadian study, the JPR7 NCI C study, uh, which SWOG was involved in. Um, And uh, uh, Tia Hagana was our lead on that, and we accrued very well to it. Now, uh, there are differences in the the groups. Uh, The JPR7 study, smaller. Uh, You did not have a a qualification period to go on, so if you had rising rising PSA and no evidence of metastases... Well, that would be a significant difference then because they may have not excluded a number of people that you lost. Yeah, so, you know, the you population lost. was didn't have to get through that, that seven-month gate. Okay. And I'm not suggesting they should have designed it that way. Yeah. Uh, but from that perspective, the fact that you don't see a difference, I think, is important. Um, if you step back a little way, yeah. in the M0 group, so we're, we're not talking castration-resistant disease, we're talking patients that are hormone-naive, hormone-sensitive, by whatever criteria, uh, the benefit for giving them androgen deprivation is uh, questionable, possibly except in patients that have a rapid doubling time. And so I think that the the, uh, the implications there are, I sort of asked the question, should I give this patient hormone therapy first? Mm-hmm. And then if I do, I can say, look, we can do intermittent to control your PSA, which is a useful marker at that stage, but becomes less so as the disease progresses. Uh, we can use your PSA, we can control you, and we can, you know, we can give you a better quality of life without compromising. When you become metastatic, mm-hmm. the situation changes and, you know, Absolutely. we've got you on continuous therapy. There are enough differences there to keep you busy through a multidisciplinary meeting or tumour board session. This really highlights the importance of well-conducted randomised trials to answer the questions we want answers for, rather than relying on clumping lesser data together. There does seem to be a big difference in the efficacy of drugs in a lot of trials, such as the bone-targeted therapies, between M0 and M1 disease. Is M0 prostate cancer really that different? I think M0 disease uh, is a moving bus uh, for a number of reasons. Um, We have seen uh, in Australia the advent of uh, better scanning with PSMA scans, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. We have not seen that in the United States. Uh, But the PSMA scan here, the the, uh, carbon-11 scans with acetate and choline in the US, which uh, have limited availability, 
uh, allow you to detect a lot more metastases. And um, you, you know, stepping back back a bit, if you do if you screen people in that M zero group, you just do a technetium old style bone scan and a CT. Thirty mm. percent of them have mets. If you do a sodium fluoride uh, PET bone scan, which is a better bone scan, thirty percent more you find thirty percent more mets, better sensitivity. Mm. And then there's an upping of uh, sensitivity with various advanced MRI and other novel imaging techniques. In Australia, we have enthusiastically embraced the new imaging modality, PSMA PET-CT, or prostate-specific membrane antigen-based computed tomography combined with positron emission tomography. It has led to a true stage migration with almost no data on its effective role in men with prostate cancer compared to standard or conventional imaging techniques. I think it's an interesting technology. I mean, I think what our challenge now is to embed it into clinical trials, and it's yes. something that we have not done in um, in clinical trials well enough, and it's led yeah. to uh, us being impeded in trying to apply that technology. And at the end of the day, uh, we have to do some sort of cost-benefit analysis mm-hmm. to make sure that we're really doing what we think we're doing. I think this is an enormous issue. It's almost like, as urologists, we're getting a bit of a reputation as wholeheartedly adopting new technologies before the evidence is in. Another issue is the trigger to restart androgen deprivation therapy. In this trial, it was a PSA of 20, all reaching the baseline PSA level. I think 20 is a lot higher than most of us would now use, and a better trigger perhaps is probably a PSA around 10 nanograms per mil. Therefore, the possibility of allowing high burden disease to exist was quite high, and may have allowed disease to progress more significantly. One issue I want to discuss briefly is that in the intermittent therapy group, there would be a period while the testosterone was recovering during the off period. This issue is very important when we consider the data coming through regarding the importance of very low testosterone with lorry clots. big question we have now is, and this cuts to a current discussion we're having about testosterone levels yes. um, and how we measure them and you know what they mean, is that we don't have that data. So one of the things is that your recovery from having stopped androgen deprivation can vary on a whole lot of factors. I mean, some guys are back in the normal range a month later. Uh, more typically, men take six months or seven months to recover, and some never recover. This issue is important because intermittent therapy is not like the preclinical models which demonstrated a significant delay in castration resistance. In the mouse model, tumours were transferred from castrate mice chopped up and back into fully androgen intact mice and then allowed to grow back up. These were ideal conditions for the androgen sensitive cells to regrow quickly. However, men on intermittent therapy spend a considerable amount of time with their testosterone in the range of 50 to maybe say 500 where the T is low enough to suppress the androgen sensitive cells but may be driving the androgen insensitive cells. Joseph, an extremely pertinent point. It's like a worst-case scenario during the early recovery phase. Hence, should I even raise the prospect of us replacing testosterone in these men? It's a very good point, Nathan, for another day. So, David, who do you think is suitable for intermittent androgen deprivation? If I've got a uh, a young guy uh, who has uh, asymptomatic disease of presentation, um, and this is just my bias, who's saying, you know, uh, I'm in the prime of my life, Mm-hmm. Uh, my quality of life and sexual experience is very important to me. Yes. Um, you know, I have an active and willing partner. Um, then that's the sort of uh, okay. the person. Now, there are people that I, I select out as not being suitable for that, um, and it may be a personal bias. So, for example, 
uh, I have men that are not in continuous relationships. Um, and if they're, if they're out sort of seeking relationships and going on hormone therapy and they think that intermittent uh, is going to help them, um, you know, that's a kind of separate non-medical discussion I have with them because okay. their performance anxiety is going to be considerable. Yes. Uh, and, uh, if, if, you know, if, if that's what they're doing. So the lifestyle factors are important. And I think mm-hmm. a, a, a very hard-in clinical study like this where we sweated over the stats 25 years ago mm. uh, can actually inform that um, and uh, lets me discuss with my average patient what the, the risk-benefit is between maybe uh, a decrement in survival from prostate cancer versus quality of life. Okay. And I think I can meld that from a, perhaps a heterosexual couple, um, mm-hmm. what, what in America they call a conventional relationship, yes. to a same-sex couple, to a single guy, to uh, you know, other permeations of the patient that I have in front of me. I asked David, what is one of the most common questions you get asked about the paper? I think that one of the issues, for example, when we go to our patient advocates, and mm-hmm. they've looked at this, um, and our patient advocates asked us to review this paper with them. Mm-hmm. So the real discussion was, what does this mean for the patient? And what does it Good mean question. for the, the physician mm-hmm. uh, talking to their patient? So, you know, I think what it means is we can say, look, we can do intermittent therapy, but you give up some months maybe depending on what group you're in up to you know a year and a half of survival but your quality of life will be better so it's a buy-off and it's interesting with with the patients Uh, most of my patients are uh, in uh, heterosexual relationships their wife or their significant other is there and uh, there'll be a discussion where you know the 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 man is saying I'll do intermittent things I'll go for quality of life okay yes uh, the wife is saying, you've got to be kidding. You think you're checking out early just so that, you know, we can have a little bit more sex. Um, that's not what I signed up for. Joseph, okay, it's time for the take-home messages to our avid listeners. All right. Firstly, this study failed to show that intermittent therapy was non-inferior to continuous therapy with respect to survival, and the trial failed to show that continuous therapy was superior to intermittent therapy. So let's get this clear. It is not non-inferior and it is not superior. You could say that it was statistically inconclusive. But off the record, the deck seems heavily stacked towards continuous therapy in men with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. This is important because I think in men with low burden disease, there does seem to be some evidence that intermittent therapy is not detrimental if they have early or true M0 disease. I think intermittent suppression is not as good for controlling your prostate cancer. Okay. So if individual patients and physicians want to do intermittent, yep. I'm absolutely fine with that. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's a question right. where you, you give up something for that. Secondly, this study does not support the hypothesis from preclinical data that intermittent therapy delays the emergence of castration-resistant disease. And this is really case for pause, as it may be issues with differences in the testosterone recovery phase in men compared with the preclinical rat model that have found this lack of delay of castration resistance. And now for stating the bleedingly obvious, men in the off period experience improved erectile function and mental health. Treatment needs to be individualised based on potential benefits and risks with intermittent versus continuous treatment. And David's take-home message? What I'd say to urologists and, and, and patients uh, yes. is look at the study, don't just read the abstract. Uh, we'll get you some more data on the quality of life soon. 
uh, and you get to have that balance discussion. I hope you found this interesting. And if you have any questions, comments or feedback, all positive feedback can be sent to talkingurology at gmail.com. And all negative feedback can be directed to the UK Health Minister, Jeremy Hunt, who seems adept at dealing with or ignoring negative feedback from doctors. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ipsen. Thank you.